Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you today here in the sanctuary and with those of you who are watching online from wherever that may be. Isn't the sunshine and glorious? It's such a wonderful sight after the spring we've had. Um, but for an Irish kid like me, it's time to grow that Irish sunscreen. So without, without becoming a werewolf at the same time. So that's why I've got a little bit of a, a beard up here. But uh, if it's your first time to Lambrick or you're returning after having missed a few weeks, as Aaron said, we're just past the midway point of our series on the fruit of the Spirit uh, as found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. Now, I recognize a lot of friendly and familiar faces out there today, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jonathan Berry. Uh, I'm really honored and humbled to be up here and sharing a little bit about what God has been doing uh, and teaching me about goodness. And I think it's only really fitting that the families that, whose last name is literally a fruit are participating in this series. Um, and just for the record, Aaron, I know the Caribbean mangoes are great, but berries rule. So just so we, we, we set the record straight. Uh, a little bit about me. Uh, my wife and I have been coming to Lambrick Park for the better part of 20 years now. In fact, I had the privilege and the honor to baptize her here almost 20 years ago. Uh, and in August, we'll celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary. So that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm also joined this morning by my two boys, uh, Desmond, who is 11, and Mal or Desmond, who is 11, and Malcolm, who is eight. I only have two, and I can't seem to keep track of them. Um, and you'll notice that I didn't put a picture of uh, our family up there. Uh, I love and respect my wife, and maybe some of the men can sympathize with this. But have you ever tried to pick? a family photo, uh, and you think, this is so beautiful. My wife looks so great, my family looks so beautiful, but you know nothing of lighting and filters and all those other types of things. And you, you think, okay, I'm gonna post this, I'm gonna share this publicly, and then you get a yell from somewhere in the house, what is this? And uh, clearly, my, my, you know, my choice isn't her choice, and so uh, I decided to take the safe route today and just post pictures of my boys. Sorry, sweetie. I'd rather sleep in our bed than, in the, uh, than, than on the couch. So, I'm also one of nine speakers in this series that started in May and that will run through to July. And we're over the past six weeks, we've heard some wonderful teaching and sharing from some of my growing group of friends. So Aaron, our pastor of youth ministries, introduced Galatians, the importance of abiding in the vine and walking with the Spirit if we're going to be fruitable. Lewis talked about love. Siobhan, my sister-in-law, talked about joy. Lauren, peace. Carly, patience. And Sue, uh, about kindness last week. And isn't Sue the model of kindness? I think I'll never forget those little, the little squishy face that she made. It will forever be seared into my memory. All this leads us uh, to this week's Fruit of the Spirit, which is goodness. Before I start, I just want a little bit of a, a, a warning on the front. With a discussion about goodness, uh, it's hard to avoid the topic of brokenness. There are references to acts uh, of the, the fruit of the flesh. Uh, although no details are shared, uh, viewer caution is advised. There's some 
mature subject matter. It will come at the end. We won't go into gory details, but I just wanted to give that as a warning up front. And in this context, uh, whoops, getting ahead of myself. So before I start, I, I need to confess two things as well. The first is, uh, at least according to my kids, I am a total noob. So yes, I just said noob in church, and it kind of feels inappropriate. Uh, and I'm not sure if that term has ever been used up here before. You can either call Scott now or call, later, call him later if you want. Uh, I appreciate that folks under the age of 25 may not be familiar with this term, but for the uninitiated, it's simply slang for describing someone who's inexperienced at doing something. And in this context, it's just a disclaimer that I've never been up here before like this and spoken in such a large, large group. So buckle in and don't worry, we'll pray for me here a second time in just a moment. I need a drink of water too. I know Lauren talked about perspiration a couple of weeks ago. I think, I don't know where all the moisture in my body has gone, so. I feel like a, I'm part dog this morning. Um, the second confession is this, that of all the fruits of the Spirit, I was, avoid, I was hoping to avoid speaking on goodness. Not very good, uh, is it? When Scott asked each of us for a list of our top three fruit a few months ago, I put... I put it at the bottom, thinking that he won't ask me to do my least preferred fruit, right? To be honest, my primary motivation for avoiding goodness was largely based in my shameful desire to avoid seeing the expression of disbelief on the faces of those who know me most. My friends and family love me, but they could also be sitting their arms crossed, thinking, get a load of this guy. I'm pretty sure I've grown some fruit, but Part of me, you know, sort of thought, I'll surprise my family with tickets on a cruise to Alaska and sort of say, well, you guys have to leave the day before the, uh, the time I have to speak, so <laughs> here you go, too bad, you have to go without me. Because I think in some ways, goodness kind of feels like that executive virtue, the one that grounds and brings life to all the other fruit. And on our own, we might be able to produce, produce some homely, misshapen, counterfeit fruit but without goodness, it's hard to imagine the growth of big, authentic, juicy, life-giving fruit. At least not as described by Galatians or even Aaron and his Caribbean mangoes. And I think therein lies the problem. And maybe, maybe the, it's one that you share as well. So how do we talk about something like goodness when at first all we can think of is, what do I truly know about goodness? Yes, good people exist. Good things do happen. It's not a complete apocalyptic nightmare out there. Not yet, at least. But when you simply look around and read the news and go to work and aimlessly scroll through your news and social media feeds, I think it's only human to ask, where is goodness? When all I see is war, and not just war in faraway lands like we're witnessing in Ukraine, but violence in our own communities. The attempted arson of a Ukrainian pastor's house here in Victoria while his kids slept upstairs. The daily battle for the hearts and minds of young people as experienced across all the cities in BC through the opioid epidemic and the seemingly growing number of indiscriminate acts of vandalism and assault. When all I can see is deepening social and political divisions, environmental destruction and global pandemics with so much pain, sorrow, anger, and needless death. Who is good? 
Over the past season, I've lamented to friends over the parade of leaders, many of whom were the heroes of my youth, who have, sh- who have had their duplicity unveiled, and not simply those that claim to have succumbed to a momentary weakness of the flesh, but those with proven predatory predilections, and often with no distinction between those inside and those outside the church. What is goodness? How, we plant, how do we plant and cultivate goodness when much of what we see and experience only resembles brokenness? How can we sow and reap goodness when there's no longer a shared point of reference on which to define goodness? Not that there ever was one in the broadest and deepest sense, but there's no word except maybe the word truth that has become so watered down and so meaningless. The result, I think, is a worldview that is increasingly rooted in cynicism and despair, where goodness is left up to the individual to define and live out. And we can see the fruit of this this garden, these acts of the flesh, through a growing self-centeredness that's collapsing into escapism when life is divorced from the source of life itself. I know we've read this passage a number of times over the last few weeks, uh, reading Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 29, or verse 19 to 22, but this message translation, I think, is especially haunting. It reads, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods. Magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, an all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. In the end, we can no longer see and acknowledge goodness, even when it's right in front of us. If you'll bear with me for a moment while I said a scene, but I recently watched a film that I think captures this cultural moment well. It's a Tom Hanks movie called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Some of you may have seen it. It's a dramatized version of the real-life friendship that grew between an award-winning journalist whose name in the movie is Lloyd Vogel and a famed children's television host, Fred Rogers, who I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Now, there's a lot in this movie that's fictionalized. It's not a traditional memoir of, of Mr. Rogers, and there's a lot I wish there was that, that I wish was there that wasn't around the real-life faith of Mr. Rogers, who was, uh, in fact, a Presbyterian minister. However, the early part of the story, as it sets the stage for the first encounter between these two men, creates a poignant moment that really captures the essence, I think, of where we are. In the story, Lloyd has just won a major award for his journalistic endeavors, which are largely achieved through his scorched earth critiques of others in the pursuit of, of his truth. He recently married and had his first child, and so he's on top of the world when we first meet him. But soon we're drawn into the fact that Lloyd is clearly running from a broken past. While attending his sister's third wedding, he gets into a fistfight with his estranged father as they discuss the treatment of his now deceased mother. 
Soon after, with a black eye to show for it, he returns to work only to find that his boss is sending him out on an assignment to write a new story about one of America's national heroes, Mr. Rogers. Lloyd is clearly unhappy with the assignments, and in fact, Mr. Rogers was the only one of all the heroes chosen for this article that to, uh, be, to agree to be interviewed by Lloyd because of his reputation. And after turning away another attempt by his father to reconcile yet again, Lloyd confesses to his wife as they lie on their bed at night that he'll be leaving home again the next day in the pursuit of his next assignment. The conversation goes something like this. Lloyd says, I'm going to be profiling Mr. Rogers. His wife says, really? I love Mr. Rogers. Lloyd is not impressed. She tells Lloyd, if he's so unhappy with the assignment, maybe he could stay home for a while, spend some time with his family. He declines, and in her disappointment again at realizing the people who love Lloyd the most are again the least of his priorities, she says, at least this time it's someone good. To which Lloyd replies, yeah, we'll see. I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, there are times where I've come to a place where I've shared Lloyd's response. I'll believe it when I see it, I say. But don't fret. It would be a truly depressing morning if we stopped there, wouldn't it? I'm hoping that together we'll come to see over the next few minutes that from the Garden of Eden, to the flood, to Mount Sinai, to the prophets, to the cross and beyond, there is a sad yet comforting theme that although people routinely turn away from God, the goodness of who he is, what he's, what he's intended, and what he's done for us, that God has not and will not turn away from us. He continues to pursue us nonetheless. And it, it is this active pursuit that is the very essence of goodness. So let's take some time this morning to remind ourselves of what God's word has to say about goodness and explore how we might grow goodness in our lives and the life of the church. As the writer of the 31st, 38th Psalm bids us, come taste and see the Lord is good. First, let us bow our heads and have a short prayer. God of heaven and earth, you are a good father. You're our Abba who draws near and calls us by name. Through the person of your Son and the gift of your Spirit, come this morning, still our hearts and minds. Help us to hear and receive your word so that we may know you better and grow in Christ-likeness to the glory of your name. Amen. So, where do we start? Let's start by looking uh, really what, what the Bible has to say about goodness. And honestly, on the surface, it's kind of a daunting task. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but there are a lot of words that translate into good and goodness across the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the most popular terms used in Scripture. And by some accounts, you'll find 700 references from beginning to end across the Bible. But right from the beginning, there is a foundational term, a, a very small three-letter Hebrew word called tov, T-O-V. Tov refers to the fact that God is good and God does good. Tov comes from a strong emphasis on God's active, scandalous, leave the other 99 sheep, not concerned about your definition 
of fairness type of generosity that is embodied through his intergenerational promise-making and promise-keeping. And it's here that I'm going to draw upon and adapt a bit of a framework that I think is helpful for thinking uh, through the four themes of Tove as found in Scripture. This framework is uh, largely drawn from a wonderful book by Scott McKnight and Laura Berenger called A Church Called Tove. Maybe some of you have read it, hopefully not everyone, or this is going to be a very boring next 10 minutes. The first theme, though, is that God, God alone is good. It's who he is. Tove is first and foremost about God. As the Psalms declare, God, you are good and do only good. And we see this truth manifest right at the beginning of God's story. In fact, it's Moses who probably has the single greatest encounter and witness of God's goodness outside of the garden. And we find this encounter in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where, God asked, where Moses asked God not only to reveal his glory, but Mo- Moses also wants to know, what will distinguish your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, how shall we now live? God replies by saying, I will cause my tove, my goodness, to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God reveals that his goodness is inseparable from his name. It is embedded at the very core of who he is. It's goodness coalescing around his compassion, his graciousness, his patience, his loving kindness, forgiveness, and justice. This is combined in the very glory of the great I am. It radiates from him and Moses is changed forever as a result. God is pure, unadulterated goodness without any crookedness or any duplicity. The great I am is Tove. It's intrinsic to his character and found in all that he does, and it cannot be separated from who he is. And this means no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances are or appear to be, his goodness is unchanging. God will always be good, and God will always do good, because God is good. The second theme is that goodness, the goodness of who God is means that Tov is built into his design for all creation. He has and will continue to shape everything towards goodness. God creates out of the formless and empty void order, purpose, function, beauty, and life itself. After taking a step back, he assigns it the only grade that he can. It's Tov. And in fact, it's not just Tov, it's very Tov. I don't know why, but every time I read very good, I kind of get like this California surfer-like tone in my head. Like, like it's, um, but I, I don't want to disrespect God or California surfers, so I'm not even going to try to do the accent out loud. Um, but Tov suggests what's visually pleasing and pleasant, what is desirable, what is of high quality, what is excellent, and what is awesome. Everything in its proper place, doing its proper task. This is good. And when we live according to his good design, we become people of Tov. And when we become people of Tov, we become people who are like him. And we see this at work in the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. 
a story of how God is at work in our day-to-day lives and hardships, even when it's not clearly visible. If you aren't familiar, the story is largely based in the relationships between Naomi, a widow and mother-in-law to Ruth, a member of the Moabite and enemy tribe of Israel, and Boaz, an Israelite farmer. After struggling through famine, death, and grief, after the tragic deaths of sons and husbands, Naomi decides to leave Moab and move back to her Israelite family, and she warns her foreign daughters-in-law that life will be hard as foreign widows. But Ruth, despite being an outsider, pledges her loyalty and service to Naomi and Naomi's family and tribe and Naomi's God. Soon out of desperation for food, Ruth has a providential encounter with Boaz, who is so impressed with Ruth's loving kindness and her character that he not only allows her to pick grain from his field, but also commits to marrying Ruth as the family redeemer. Eventually, the story ends with the birth of their son, a lineage that will run right through David all the way to Jesus. And so, and despite of a story that starts with tragedy and is marked by acts of, it's marked by acts of tremendous generosity. And what is interesting is that the narrator never even mentions God, not even once in the whole book. But the story itself is a picture of God's providence, his goodness weaving and willing itself through stories and relationships, cultures of real life people with real life problems. Where God's ultimate design for us, loving him and loving others, can be seen and experienced. This leads us to our third theme, and that is that God's goodness is active. As the Psalms rejoice, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. God's goodness isn't passive. Sometimes engaged, sometimes not. An otherworldly kind of goodness. It's not static, it does not rest. Something tangible and visible must take place. As Professor uh, Gordon Fee at Regent so wisely puts it, God's goodness does not exist at all apart from its active, concrete expression. Where there is goodness, something good happens. It is a behavior manifested by a disposition to give to others in a way that has no alternative motive or selfish ambition and is not limited by what the recipient deserves, but consistently goes beyond it. It means no matter what happens, God is actively working to bring about good. And that includes bringing about good in spite of evil. We see this in the story of Joseph in Genesis, and likely we all know the Sunday school story. Jealous of their father's love for Joseph and his gifts, Joseph's brothers, while he's still a teenager, plot to kill him, but instead eventually sell him into slavery, then lie about it and actually create evidence to fake his death. All the while they mock him, we'll see what comes of those dreams, they say. But as we fast forward, years after years have passed, and crisis and famine have reunited them all together, Joseph, without malice, hatred, or even a second thought, generously and graciously welcomes and embraces his brothers. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph goes on to say, you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done now, the saving of many lives. Now this does not mean that bad things, that the bad things that happen to people are somehow not evil anymore. It also doesn't mean that God makes evil good 
in itself. That would be a contradiction. It does mean that there is, it does not mean that there is essentially no difference between good and evil. No, Joseph does not try to excuse or minimize or deny the evil that his brothers had done. Evil is evil. But what Joseph's words do express is that God's goodness reigns and he has the power to bring good results out of the evil that people intend. God's unrelenting goodness overcomes evil and because God is good, God is in charge. The fourth and final theme is just that, that Tov resists evil. Every act of God's goodness is an act of resistance towards selfishness, selfishness and the fruit of the flesh. To do Tov is resistance to what is not Tov. And we see in Daniel the story of this resistance. Here is a person with whom his enemies could find no fault because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel's life was marked by a spirit of excellence and he was trusted to work honestly in service of the leaders of the enemies of his people. Enemies who tried to entrap him by outlying foreign prayer or prayer to foreign gods and forced Daniel to choose to whom he owed his allegiance. In the end, Daniel continued his daily prayer routine regardless of the threat and cost. And we know where that landed him. And we know who saved him. But doing good is an act of resistance. Uh, and that resistance creates space for God's power to bring about the means for healing, reconciliation, and justice. However, we'd be well, to be well served to remember that God's drive to resist and root out evil also means that he will not let evil go unchecked, undisciplined, or unpunished. And this equally applies to God's people. As Paul says in Romans, consider therefore the kindness and the judgment of God. For God's goodness is not some fuzzy, warm-hearted set of feelings. Yes, God is gracious and long-suffering, but it is also because of these qualities that God must bring a response to evil that says enough is enough. And at times this leads to a cutting off or a withdrawal of God's goodness from those who not only spurn his love, but actively resist it and go on doing evil. Although I confess that it's a challenging notion to consider the dual nature of God's goodness in such stark and consequential terms, it can also be a source of great hope for victims of evil. They and we can know that because God is good, he will not rest until evil is defeated and the broken and the dead are made new. Praise God that his goodness is sovereign. And because it's sovereign, it reigns. And because it reigns, justice and peace will reign with it. Amen, friends? So, now as we take a step back and we look at this circle of Tov, I think what begins to emerge is something that looks a lot like the very heart of the gospel. The good news as lived and taught and preached by the good shepherd. If we believe that when we see Jesus, we see what God is like, and if we believe that God showed us his love by sending his son to save us from sin, to establish his kingdom, and to shut down religion so we can share in the life of the spirit, then in Jesus we not only find the ultimate expression and model of goodness, but the very source of life itself. And that's where we find ourselves in Galatians, and in fact, in almost every other book of the New Testament, where James and Paul and Peter, in particular, are consistently exhorting Christ followers 
that this gift of new life, a life lived in gratitude towards God's goodness, is intended to lead us to love what is good, teach what is good, cling to what is good, be ready and eager to do what is good, to never tire and become weary in doing good, to devote ourselves to doing what is good, to bear fruit and abound in every good work, and to live such good lives that people will see your good deeds and glorify God. That's as many references I could fit into one breath of, God, of the New Testament. But scripture continually insists that if I have been saved because of God's goodness, then I have been called to live in God's goodness. Not to be good doers, but to be good doers. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So how? As Paul calls us in Galatians, how do we become fruitable in the area of goodness? Jesus teaches us that goodness begins in the heart and comes from the source of life inside us. What we are on the inside is like fruit, and that fruit is the evidence of what is going on inside. As he says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. A good person brings good things out of the good stored in their heart. For out of the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, I, I certainly don't have all the answers, and that's why I come up here with fear and trembling. But I've begun to identify a few ways that we as individuals and a church family, I think, can begin to store up goodness in our hearts and become more fruitable. The first thing is we can practice regular acts of remembrance. Take time to remember who God is, remember who you are in him, and what he's done in your life. At various points in my life, I've taken just some quiet time to literally draw a timeline from my birth to whatever age I'm at and map out the highs and lows of my life. And what I've really come to see is that through every low, I can draw a line of God's grace picking me up on, the, on every side of, of that season. A real demonstration of God's goodness Try it, it might work for you. The second thing I've learned is to practice routines and rhythms of silent prayer, wherein we take time to confess our sins. Confession puts us and God in our right place. Confession, confess who God is and what he has done. Confess our desire for his spirit to inhabit and grow in us. In just basic terms, silent prayer is an intentional slowing down and focusing our attention upon God through the simplicity of just shared presence. In a world that moves at such a frenetic pace, silent prayer causes us to lay down our preoccupations and tend to the presence and invitation of Jesus. On some level, I don't think it's a coincidence that all the individuals who resemble God's goodness in scripture are often people who spent long periods of time in silence by themselves. With and with God. Finally, we need to nurture habits of goodness by looking for and doing acts of empathy. Empathy that leads to deep, burdensome intercessory prayer. Acts of outrageous generosity that bear no concern for the fairness, for fairness or for cost. 
acts of scandalous grace that forgives even the undeserving, acts of focused presence that clearly tell someone that nothing else matters more than they do, acts of truth-telling by confessing the sins of the church. It's not just individuals who perpetrate sin. Acts of reconciliation to those whom the church or we as individuals has wronged, often in the name of God. By doing some or all of these things, we start to create a foundation of Tov in our lives and in our homes and in the church. And as Tov increases, a culture of Tov begins to emerge. A culture where by the power of the Holy Spirit, goodness is simply simply becomes the way we do things around here. When this happens, not only we uh, look and become more like Jesus, maybe even like Fred Rogers a little bit, minus those horrible sweaters, I wasn't a big fan of those. But our neighbors, our community, maybe even the Lloyd Vogels of the world will finally be able to say, yes, I can see goodness too. At this point, I'll invite the worship team to come up. Uh, And while they do, I just want to finish by saying that perhaps all of what I've said today still sounds just like a lot of words. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm, a storm so dark, and a place so broken that you can't see out. All I can say is, one, usually sitting in the audience with all of you, that I've been there. My life equally shows the scars inflicted by pain, and suffering. In fact, when I was, a, I was a child born to near teenage parents who were actively counseled to have an abortion. I wrestled with childhood trauma, born of sexual assault as a young boy, and years of merciless schoolyard bullying. I have had seasons of crippling performance anxiety. My wife and I have experienced two miscarriages. And out of the blue, two years ago, I went through a cancer diagnosis at the age of 39. Now, I don't share this to elicit sympathy or to make this in any way about me. I say this only to acknowledge that we all share in life's sufferings. And even though I couldn't always see it in the moment, I can honestly look back now and see that God is good. Although his goodness did not prevent these acts that led to my brokenness, he does provide the means and the way to redeem it. Whether that was through a church family coming alongside my parents and showing them that not only was keeping a life a real option, but here is some tangible help and community in which to make that happen. Or a Christian child psychologist with healing words and I'll never forget this dancing, mischievous sparkle in his eye that convinced even an eight-year-old boy that there's life on the other side of this pain. To a beautiful and resilient wife and mother with support of many of you who are here today with a meal train, took on all the household duties and nursed me back to health after six months of debilitating uh, chemotherapy. It's because of all this that I know that God is good and God is at work in us. And because he's good, he won't leave us until his good work is done. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. God, we give thanks for who you are. 
and what you have done for us. Through your spirit, establish in this church, in your church, a deep well of goodness from which we can draw upon to heal a broken world. According to your good grace, grow in us the likeness of and life of your son, Jesus. May we one day proclaim with all the saints, we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. To the glory of your name. Amen.